Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview podcast, September 2nd, 2015, the Chinese shares and Beirut garbage edition. I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department at the University of Birmingham in England, joined as usual by my co-hosts Kristala Yakinthu, a Birmingham Research Fellow. Hello, Kristala. Hello, Adam. Hello, Scott. And by Professor Scott Lucas, who is Professor of International Politics and Editor of News and Commentary site EA Worldview. Hello, Scott. Good afternoon, everyone. Our two topics this week. First, as stock markets around the world and those who cover them indulged in their occasional habit of injecting terror into all of our hearts with a sudden crash, this time emanating from China, we try our best to stay in our lane as non-economists while thinking about what it did mean, does mean, could mean. Second, as protests over garbage collection in Beirut spiral into violent confrontation and calls for the resignation of the government, we discuss whether something's rotten in the state of Lebanon. Sorry, couldn't resist it. China's stock market lost something like 8% of its total value during an unstable final week of August, with the bulk of the action taking place during a couple of black days on Monday and Tuesday of last week. China's problems were followed by sell-offs and price falls in shares in Asia, Europe and the United States, so getting on for pretty much everywhere. The media reacted to this with its customary even temper and restrained affect and it all blew over without much mention. Haha, <laughs> just kidding. It consumed headlines for days and prompted intense coverage ranging from the anxious to the hysterical. So, one week later, everyone on this podcast, I think, still has roofs and jobs, but should we consider this a foreshock warning us that another full-blown earthquake in the world economy of the scale of 2009 is around the corner, or perhaps more within the realm of our expertise, how should we expect political leaders to respond to these kinds of fears? Scott... Help me out here. Should this should this have me uh, uh, quaking under my desk in near mortal terror about the uh, return of existential crisis? Is this all going to blow over? What should I be doing with my, of course, carefully personally managed pension plan? Uh, give me anything. Give me what you got. <laughs> and extensive stock listings. Yeah, I mean, this is a day-to-day issue for me, obviously. Someone whose wealth is as tied up in shares and capital as me. As much as I know, Adam, that you like to go into your survivalist shelter <laughs> in your back garden. Well, it costs a lot to build, Scott. I want to uh, use it. Exactly. With a couple of years of baked beans stocked up inside some ceramic fortification. Maybe I'm a bit too blasé, but no. You, you don't have to do that. I mean, it just seemed like Chicken Little had come early this year, or rather that Chicken Little had come during August, which is a relatively slow news cycle in many countries, especially in the West. Chicken Little for the non-nursery rhyme uh, Sorry, uh, readers. Chicken Little declares, I apologize in case students that, and others who we are addressing out there have not actually grown up with the nursery rhyme, uh, is that Chicken Little goes around saying, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, to which various people say, no, in fact, the sky is not falling. And um, Scott cynically replies that actually it's the media agencies that are, that are whose skies are falling in. Yeah. On falling over days. themselves, yes. uh, as it were. Absolutely. See what we did there. So the sky is falling quite often as a construction in what is a combination of a relatively slow news cycle and also just certain tendencies to panic whenever you have a dip in the economy and especially when it has to do with this really large country that we kind of heard something about called China, uh, which is now apparently an economic superpower that rivals the United States. There's some serious economic and political issues behind this. The serious economic issue, however, is more of a Chinese local issue. And that is that this is a country which has had a long 
sustained period of very, very high growth in comparison to the rest of the world because it is a country which is just expanding to catch up in terms of providing services, houses, entertainment, leisure, technology, communications for billions, you know, for more than a billion people. The economy overheated at a point where not only did you have a surplus of investment going in, some investment that was paying off, some that wasn't, you had a surplus of funds going into the stock market. And when those stocks dip, as they do, then the market corrected itself. What happened beyond that basic issue that China has to deal with, which it will deal with in terms of its development is, is that people's confidence took a shock in that they asked the question, oh my gosh, is this a sudden downturn? Remembering that we're only, what, seven years removed from the Great Recession of 2008, the financial bubble. Yeah, we took a look down the barrel of the shotgun into the abyss. Something black and terrifying, it seems, a few years ago. Right. Reason enough memory to have people on the edge of their seat. And it was terrifying a few years ago. This is the point. This was people overreacting in 2015 to a structural problem that existed several years ago. Look, China's got some issues they're going to have to deal with in terms of economic development. But in no way is the Chinese crisis comparable to the global economic crisis that we faced in 2008. What was that crisis? It was an excess of lending, which meant that the banking system in many countries was unsettled, if not unstable. That lending was leading to bad market, which was not producing rewards in terms of actual things that we produce, actual goods, movement of capital. Therefore, there was a serious question as to whether, because of all this bad money, we were going to have a sustained global recession. That is not the case with China, which is happening right now. So after a few days, a few weeks possibly of correction, hopefully things will settle down because hopefully the global economic system is in a much more stable position regarding the banking sector, the financial sector, and importantly, trade and investment than we were a few years ago. But as I said... It's one thing to say that, trying to be, quote, rational about it. Emotions are fickle things, unstable things. That's what makes our job so uncertain, because we can't actually predict what's going to happen. So if we have an overreaction and confidence is shaken, it's the knock-on effects in the West, or the so-called West, that's going to be important, rather than uh, the problem specifically within China. Okay, well, Scott has me heading down the park for a cigarette and a coffee because everything's cool now, Cristala. Are you gonna are you gonna second this opinion, or are you gonna I, try gonna... and get a little bit of the fear back in me? Um, I think there's two things here. One is just just to look at China for a second. Uh, there's a political issue and an economic issue, and I think in terms of in terms of the stock market. And let me be the first one to say at this point, I am no economist. But, but well, that's a shame. Like, <laughs> no, you're not. really going to struggle to fit in with Scott and I, whose economic credentials I think are widely you, known. It is. It is not a loss to the world that I'm not an economist. I subscribed to the Economist for a while. Maybe <laughs> yes, someone else stopped, did. Stopped though. Uh, having never subscribed to the Economist, what I understand of the Chinese economy, the stock market, is that the number of people who invest in the Chinese stock market, comparative to the number of people in China, is particularly low. Right. So it's not. And, the, and of the 50 million or so people who do invest in the Chinese stock market, they don't invest wholly in the stock market. So they're fairly, their wealth is fairly reasonably distributed. So within China, it also wasn't an enormous world-ending stock market crisis. 
Politically, I think in China it's more interesting because I think the stock market, this this crisis, speed bump, whatever you want to call it, um, crisis of casino capitalism, I think signals China's broader political questions around this transition to a capitalist economy. So I think that's the interesting thing about what's going on in China. In terms of the spillover and, and, and Scott's so-called Western states, I think... I think it's two things. One, China is a spotlight here. So Western economies are stagnant. stagnant. They have been for a while. Um, and I think that the, the doom, the hand-waving that I'd like to do is to say that really without a major revision of, of economic policies and whether the underpinning ideologies that we have in the West and the assumptions that we have about uh, how the world works and how capitalism works and how it corrects itself and whether it is the, the best way forward for all humankind. I think without, without really looking at these kind of questions, crises like China are going to continue to happen. So it might. So for me, China is a spotlight about capitalism and how it works and if it works. And I think what it does is tap into a lot of the kind of emerging or or continuing anti-austerity debates. If you talk about Britain, I think some of it speaks to some of the debates um, and the ideas like those that have been supported by Jeremy Corbyn. For me, China spotlights a lot of things that are happening in terms of how is capitalism working, how is this kind of... You talked, Scott, about a, a global recession or not, but but really it kind of it, it gives us a clue into, in, into questions about what we want the world to be. To throw in my, uh, my, my, I don't even think it's two cents. It's more like maybe do they, do they, do they still do half cents uh, for, for any official purpose, like the old half penny around here. Mm-hmm. I'm not an economist, did subscribe for a while, uh, stopped <laughs> recently, uh, alienated by their braying establishment tone, but they can try and talk me back into it if they want to respond to this podcast. I mean, there's a specific issue here, it seems, which is China has been the motor for a long time uh, of the world economy. Uh, that is bound, in its current form at least, to draw to some kind of close in the foreseeable future, partly because, uh, as a simple matter of mathematics, the larger the Chinese economy gets, the feasibility of it making further growth by exporting to other people uh, becomes unviable because it just becomes a bigger share of the economy, and obviously the biggest economy in the world can't be making most of its running by by selling things to other smaller economies. So those who claim to know about these things have been saying for a long time that China needs to transition in a million and one ways to a different sort of economy from what it has been so far, based more on domestic consumption, more diverse private profit-making allocation of resources, better application of the rule of law to, uh, to economic affairs, that colossal warehouse explosion mm-hmm. uh, that took place in Tianjin recently uh, gives us some idea of the real-world consequences of some of the issues of rule of law and corruption in, in the economic sphere that, that apply there. But as you've alluded to, they're, they're attempting a pretty high-wire political operation to do this because China's been growing for a very long time. That's become an accepted feature of the environment over there. And the government is, to some extent, uh, the beneficiary of that, because it's seen as having enabled it to happen. But if it should stop, then the flip side of that is that they will likely be, be blamed for it. So, you know, in the US or in the UK, uh, if the government messes up the economy, they lose their, their jobs in government. Maybe they lose their seats or their districts. If the Chinese government loses growth 
and with it political control, then they could lose everything up to and including possibly their lives in the worst case scenario. So they're playing at the high rollers table. Um, and that, therefore, I suppose, is why the government has been so ready to lunge in with interventions to prop up the stock market to, uh, to, keep, it, uh, to keep it going. So there's a, a huge long-term challenge there for the Chinese government to get to this place that the economists seem to say the economy needs to go to to keep growing without bringing about any kind of uh, short-term dip in growth that they may just not be able to, to pull off with sufficient um, persuasiveness to maintain their political position. And if the Chinese Communist Party loses its political position, all bets are off, the mm-hmm. casino is closed, who knows what's going to happen from that point on. With regard to the contagion issue, the thing that I suppose makes me just that little bit more nervous than, than, than Scott's analysis is this feeling that we're, however we were placed for the crisis that happened a few years ago, we're even worse placed, it seems, if anything like it should happen again. When 2008, 2009 rolled around, what we got to bring us back to normal in as much as we ever did get back to normal uh, was the continuing growth of China and the availability of a bunch of tools for Western governments to stave off the worst. We're talking bailouts, interest rate cuts, printing of money through quantitative easing and so on. That's all already deployed Mm -hmm. and loss of Chinese growth is now the issue that's actually posing the threat. Mm. So when I fret in my bunker... Uh, uh, made of porcelain, I think was your suggestion. Baked I'm, beans. Um, yeah, I, I think I'm going to go for a, uh, going to invest for the, uh, the the tougher version than porcelain, just in case. You never know. Always go for the second cheapest when you've got a lot of quotes to choose between. Is just this feeling that there's not an awful lot left that anyone really knows would have any effect to pull out of the bag as a as a countermeasure. So we really are in the position of just hoping that it doesn't come to that. I still would not quite head to the bunker, although I think there's a couple of important points that you raise beyond this immediate flutter over China. I mean, again, on the Chinese case, if the Chinese, for example, system was to suddenly reduce consumption, talking about taking in things such as oil, taking in uh, materials and goods from the rest of the world that they're using to drive the Chinese economy, therefore restricting trade, then we've got a serious issue. If China was to pull back its capital, its investments, which is huge around the world, pull back those funds to cover, for example, the declining stock market, then we've got a, a serious problem. But as Cristala noted, the stock market, quote, crashing or even dipping 8% in China is not the same as if it dips 8% even in other economies because of the diversification right. of funds within there. And the absolute size of the money. Yeah. And the absolute size of the Exactly. So, you know, and again, we saw the shockwaves which spread, you know, in terms of Japan, Japan Singapore, the Australian markets, that's to be expected. But, but I think that'll ease off. I think the two more interesting points that I'd watch, one is the Chinese point itself, and you're absolutely right, which is that the question of legitimacy of the party and of the regime has been fascinating now for more than 30 years since the so-called opening to the West. And we know, of course, that the closest it came to falling was in 1989, which wasn't as much the economic issues at play in terms of this sudden rush of what might be possible. Mm-hmm. You know, if we could like open up economically, can we not open up politically? Mm-hmm. And combined with the events in Eastern Europe. Combined with the events in Eastern Europe. Yeah, exactly. Now, of course, the, the party did survive it. And what's actually happened in China, I think, is, is that they've without facing that crisis moment again, they've had to continue to maneuver between the cost of rapid economic expansion, including, quote, a deregulated expansion, 
versus the supposed notion that the state, in fact, keeps control of everything that's quite effective. I mean, we saw it a few years ago with the medical crisis or with the SARS crisis, uh, which seems you know, people like oh, so long ago. But in fact, that the government had to make responses, that, that some people lost their jobs, some people were put into prison because of irresponsibility, but they had to proclaim that they could be effective in the health sector. We're going to see it over the chemical explosions over Tianjin, for example, and the subsequent issues. You'd certainly hope. Uh, if, if, if something like that can happen, you, no one asks questions. But you will. I mean, because uh, yeah. what happens the is... The video of that was just mind-blowing exactly. terrifying, like a whole postcode looked like it went up mm. in a series of sequential explosions. Exactly. Essentially because someone had been stashing a bunch of unbelievably explosive stuff without any of the precautions you would require. And, and that, but again, that was just the most dramatic example. We've seen that happen periodically. And what happens is, is that provincial officials tend to be sacked, tend to be corrupted. But of course, you firewall it. It never ever reaches the top of the system in terms of who has to go. Even though for this current premier, he came in on an anti-corruption platform. That was one thing that brought him in. What's interesting about anti-corruption is, is do you say, look, Part of our problem with all these chemical plants going up, part of our problem with all the health issues, the environmental issues, is because we've gone to this type of unrestricted capitalism. So it's not, in fact, the lesson which people in the West would say, which is you should be even more, basically, private investment, responsibility, and so on. But people come back and say, no, it's completely the opposite. Mm. We've gone too far down the route of Western economic models. Mm. That's going to be interesting how it plays out, and I think how it's negotiated within China. Again, I think... That's not strictly a Chinese issue. It has global implications. But the wider issue is how the global economies respond, how national economies respond. And it's interesting you bring up that question of anti-austerity. I don't think the problem in the West, and this would be why I'm being 2 plus 8, I don't think the problem in the West is production. Mm. I don't think the problem in the West is technology. I think you're going into a period of cheap oil, which is going to lead to being able to stimulate economies I think you're looking at further technological advances in various sectors we could talk about. I think the problem is distribution. Mm. And that is is that governments who went through the shock of 2008 went in, cut their budgets, cut services, and are not putting themselves in a position when, when we write the economic vote that they come back with a social responsibility in terms of what they do with respect to their populations, mm. which is why you get the effect beyond degrees, uh, beyond certain other local cases, of people saying, look, we just don't like austerity. Mm. It's a longer run issue. It's an important issue. It's the one that I hope we address. But by overcoming, you know, the, the supposed panics that everything is falling apart, where things fall apart tend to be in the steady erosion of economic rights, social rights, as opposed to a sudden collapse. Which is linked into ideological discussions about the the, the dysfunctional models of capitalism that exist. Yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely right. The question that we get is, this has been a, we've gone around and around on this. I mean, we were talking globalization in the late 1990s and the effects of globalization. Before that, going back into the 1980s, we were talking about the north-south divide in terms of distribution. Mm-hmm. It's really strange, but I'm almost what I'm putting to you is, is it almost like we have these headline stories, like you know, the stock market will implode, mm-hmm. the stock market will collapse, as distractions. From those fundamental issues, they're not yep. linked to the fundamental issues. They're distractions yep. from what taking no, place. No, I agree absolutely. Yeah, and, it's, and sorry, sorry. please. I was going to say, and, and and also distractions against discussions about more altruistic or more kind of equitable distributions of wealth that you're speaking to in countries that have responded to 2008. Yeah. I mean, the one positive story from this week. No, two. I have another one. You have another one. Yeah. Well, the, the good. Pop, well. The, 
<laughs> I'm glad we've got something to come back. The, the positive thing you know, this week was there was actual discussion slipped in amongst all the, the you know the, the doom and bloom stories, which was is that uh, some British firms are now moving to introduce the living wage. Mm. Right, you know, not the, actual, the actual one, not the one that George Osborne not the fictional, made up. Basically, right. the, the the slightly increased minimum wage, right. as as that might more accurately be known. Correct, not a minimum wage, a living wage, which is a sign, which is look in a system which functions effectively. This is what you do: yeah. that businesses cooperate with government, they cooperate with social systems to actually talk about equal distribution for everyone, and uh, and even in this supposed period of recession austerity. That small advance is taking place here in Britain. And on that cheerful note, shall we? Shall we close this segment? Let's let's wrap it up. Uh, I I don't think we will struggle to find reason to talk about this again. Somehow, fear and its uh, spectre-like presence, standing or Stalking notwithstanding. Us. Indeed. Okay, it's a wrap. Okay, uh, let's go to our, uh, our regular segment next, Number of the Week, where we thinly attempt to tie a new story we'd like to mention to a numeral contained somewhere within it. Christelle, do you want to kick us off? Yes, I had mentioned that I had a good news story attached to the Chinese stock market, to use Scott's term, inverted, cri- inverted commas crisis. Uh, my good news story is that one of the political spin-offs may well be leadership crisis in the Australian Liberal Party. The bizarrely so, named Australian Liberal Party. Yes, because actually... Think they are the least Liberal Party <laughs> available within that spectrum, One of the I'm great aware. nuances of Australian politics, yes. The hyper-conservative Australian Liberal Party, which also forms the government. So there's this place, uh, and the number of the week, which I should have started with, but I got so excited by this story, was, is 10. My number of the week is 10. And that is because there has been a 10% swing in polling for a by-election in a very small seat in West Australia, which is where I'm from, which has been a blue-ribbon liberal seat, so a government-held seat for many, 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 many years. It's a lot of many's. Many, 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 long before my time. So what happened was the uh, the sitting member uh, passed away, uh, sadly, and at the same time as the... Uh, I like how you found that in yourself. Yes, sadly. Well. Admirable universality of human sentiment. I'm a generous, magnanimous person. So, so at the same time as the Chinese stock market blip happened. And what particularly what's important about West Australia is that it's an economy that's... Uh, the Australian economy, particularly West Australia, is harnessed into China and minerals and selling minerals to China. So uh, West Australia has been undergoing rapid unemployment rises and the by-election is a reflection of a lack of confidence, I think, in the, in the Conservative government, which has been kind of wholesale, getting rid of economic, environment, environmental, human rights, so on and so forth. So fingers crossed that the Chinese crisis will uh, spur on a lack of confidence in Tony Abbott, the Australian Prime Minister, which is what it's currently doing. Which I think may be the first official political position that, uh, that the podcast has taken, mm-hmm. unless you count our uh, implicit scathing skepticism of Donald Trump's presidential campaign. I thought uh, it was so. time to put a, put a marker in the ground. Yeah, I, I don't think anyone's going to be struggling to guess uh, <laughs> which way we would tilt vis-a-vis uh, Australian conservatives um, uh, based on past output. Scott, hit me with numbers. My number this week is 
2020 or 2020 or if I'm trying to sound insufferably, impossibly attempting to be cool, 2 to the O to the 2 to the O. Oh my, Scott. Did we, did we really go there? <laughs> I'm afraid so, because a gentleman named Mr. Kanye West, oh. <laughs> who I believe is a... Uh, We're breaking all sorts of boundaries in today's podcast. Some type of rap artist, I think they call them has announced that in the year 2000... Wait, producer Connor's pressing the alarm button under the table uh, right now in light of the beginning of this segment. Yeah, Connor is assuring me that indeed Kanye apparently does do music, but in 2020 will be venturing out to become president of the United States. Uh, He made this announcement uh, over the weekend at uh, something called an MTV Music Awards, where I think... uh, People sing and dance and wear very little clothing, from what I understand. Yeah. Which part of it confused you most? Was it the music or the television or the <laughs> subtle blend of the two that they seem to have created with this new business model? I think it was not just the music and the television, but at one point some woman that they called Miley appeared wearing <laughs> what appeared to be strategically placed balloons, which had nothing to do with music at mm. any point. Um, well, you were a big fan of her father's work, I would imagine. That, uh, yeah, apparently. Back in, back in your part of the world. Yes, Mr. Billy Ray Cyrus, the country and western star who at no point showed up wearing only balloons over his naked body, nor, getting back to the story, declared that he was going to run for president, as Mr. Kanye West did. Now, what is the significance of Mr. Kanye West, who suddenly decided that he would thrill the crowd and all of America, and indeed appears most of the world, by saying he is going to save America from itself? I'm not sure there's much significance in and of itself because Kanye West has a different crazed idea every week, including marrying that Kardashian woman and then in an inspired choice deciding they would have to reproduce, calling their child North, no doubt followed by East, South, and of course West. Oh, Scott. This is on route to becoming the the most reactionary contribution (laughs) to this podcast in his entire existence, Scott. So this we're is what get, it takes to get to get some yeah. reaction out of this. You ask for deep a, cultural conservatism. You ask for a number. So the state of American politics is what I'm interested in, where this can create headlines, which in fact possibly won't go away because God knows which other music artiste or pseudo literary figure or heaven help us businessman uh, named Trump will be declaring that they want to be president. Because what we have in America now is this intermingling of celebrity and spectacle on politics, which has always been there. I mean, we can take it all the way back to the 19th century if we want to be boring in pre-Miley Cyrus days. But the spectacle has now, of course, grown and grown to where it is overtaking politics. Uh, I just find it kind of bizarre that in a week in America which started with yet another terrible news about a shooting which could have prevented, uh, which for a brief moment raised questions about whether or not we really should start thinking about gun control um, in this case because someone decided not only to shoot his fellow employees at a television station, but to film himself doing it, that a week which started with that in itself a bizarre spectacle could have descended to the point where politically we're talking about Kanye West and uh, without any concern about what he might do about the economy or gun control or you know possibly important social issues. Um, it's just really, really disconcerting that 
15 months before the American presidential election, we sort of sunk to this low point. So with respect, I bring you a depressing member of the week and promise to bring you a more hopeful one without using any type of jargon or hip kidology. Uh, oh, my Lord. Uh, in a few days' time. Well, I, I don't think I... <laughs> I don't think I can even begin to compete with that. Although I will, I guess, note in, in, in Kanye West's defense that 2020 is a long time away. So if he invests his large resources in a policy apparatus between now and then, who knows what comprehensive solutions he could come up with. I, I have to admire the, uh, the chutzpah of declaring your candidacy for the presidential election after the one that's not even selected its candidates yet. Um, I, I believe 2024 and subsequent years are still available for anyone who wants to, to put their, their name in there. But uh, on the subject of someone who, one way or another, sure as hell isn't going to be on the ballot in 2024, uh, we will also continue uh, the US presidential election trend with my number of the week, which relates to Hillary Clinton, which is 4,368, which is the number of emails released in the latest tranche uh, by the State Department of emails from her private server that she set up in her own property for the purpose of managing her email account while in office, and also 125, which is the number of emails that were declared confidential by the State Department this tranche and therefore not released. Um, this is one of those instances where I think, I, I seriously doubt this is Watergate or something. I mean, you know, these things always, if there really is some wrongdoing, tend to start off by seeming innocent and then no one believes it and then suddenly it emerges that you know will there be the one email they won't release and then it comes out redacted and then it turns out that it has uh, uh, you know her being in Benghazi when the attack on the embassy happened who knows but the one thing I will certainly say about it is that it just seems to be playing so hard into everything that even those who have some if not fondness then at least tolerance for the 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 the, the uh, virtues of Hillary Clinton's presence in public life uh, might, might worry about when it comes to her, which is, A, the Clintons, both of them really, their, their um, magnet, magnetic property when it comes to these kind of medium to small size scandals that you would think you could probably shake yourself clear of, but just through a constant series of miscalculations about appearances, possibly because you find it so hard to get outside of yourself and see yourself as others see you, that it becomes difficult to make the calculation of what things do look like, that they tend to hang around far longer than they probably need to and blow up far worse than they need to do because of the way that they're, that they're handled. You know, that it began with her uh, uh, denying there was any need for these emails to be released, then they'll be released, but she would do the judgment about which ones should come out. Then most of them were going to come out, but through the State Department, and then the server was handed over, and there was this crashingly awful moment at a press conference last week where she was being asked, did you wipe the server before you handed it over by a journalist? A pretty reasonable question when, uh, when you want it to make sure that there's no difference between the emails on it and the emails you've released, at which point she said, uh, um, and I won't do the voice, um, wipe it, you mean like with a cloth before guffawing in hilarity at her own spontaneous wit and then only correcting about 20 seconds after that when presumably the tumbleweeds drifting past with looks of disgust on the journalist's faces uh, gave, gave her pause for thought. So, you know, 
two things about this, really. One, Hillary Clinton, please don't try and be funny in public settings. Not your forte, not going to make anything better. But secondly, at this point, although I suspect the main reason she doesn't want this stuff released is just because it's a bit awkward and embarrassing and she didn't think it would be because it has this stuff like emails from Sidney Blumenthal or, or, or Martin Indyk providing honest appraisals of, uh, of people she was dealing with that maybe are too honest for what she wants out there. But... Uh, She's caused herself so much harm by the apparent evasiveness of her handling of the whole issue from day one that I almost hope that there is something she's desperately in need of concealing on there because if there isn't, then she's really harmed herself totally unnecessarily as the Clintons are wont to do yet again in the run-up to this election that it's really quite important that the Democrats should win if you're in favour of their platform and she's about the only candidate they seem to have. On the weekend of August 22nd, 23rd, inhabitants of Beirut, Lebanon, took to the streets to protest the extended failure of public authorities to collect and dispose of garbage from the city as part of what has become known as the You Stink campaign. They were met by police with fire hoses and tear gas, with tens reported hurt. Things haven't calmed down much since then. Uh, with the protest about that particular issue segueing into more general protests at the breakdown of governance in the country, which has been deeply divided by religion, among other variables, for some time. In the last few days, government buildings have been occupied by protesters calling for resignations and then forcibly cleared. Lebanon hasn't had a president for over a year and is run by a parliament that has outstayed its official mandate and failed to hold new elections. Oh, and just in case that didn't sound quite bad enough, the country is dealing with an estimated 1.2 million refugees and counting from neighbouring Syria relative to a population of their own of less than five. So, uh, sucks to be you, Beirut. This does not sound like a good situation. Cristala, what is going on here? This isn't all about garbage, is it? It's about a different kind of garbage, I think. Uh, where do you start with this story? So, in part, in part, there's a lot to say about this, but in part, it's also a protest of um, continued corruption in Lebanese politics. Um, and so, Lebanon, as you touched on, is a, is a deeply divided country that has been scarred by. Uh, among many other things, a 15-year civil war between 1975 and 1990, um, two occupations, a war with Israel, um, a war in Syria kind of on its margins, which has spilled over into the country for the last few years. But the, the big marker and the thing that I think relates most directly to the, to the You Stink campaign is that during the Civil War, everything was demolished, including and especially infrastructure. Now, what it also created was uh, cultures of cronyism and nepotism and corruption, which, which the political system that was kind of established to end the war didn't, uh, let's say prevent. So you have you have a system where there are ruling political and dynasties actually in Lebanon from the various different political parties that are broadly characterized by sect. And you have 17 different community groups, religious groups. How many? 17. That is a lot of groups. Many, many, uh, many of which have a formal stake in power in, in, in the construction of government. Um, so you have these various groups who, during the war and afterwards, have formed different alliances amongst themselves, have fought amongst themselves, but what you've also created 
is a country where people within those communities have become reliant necessarily on their community leaders for 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 most things for jobs for for support for fixing day-to-day problems as well as the kind of negotiation of life so so there are kind of silos of power and what when what that has meant is that there's a there's a relationship of dependence that's been created so the the you stink campaign in part is also a protest against this absolute hold that political leaderships have over people in Lebanon it means that the one thing that that Lebanese politicians could ever have ever agreed on is the fact that they will be able to put the money in their own pockets uh, at the expense of the public good so electricity doesn't run properly garbage certainly doesn't run properly infrastructure doesn't run properly the the economy is based largely on the private sector uh you need to know someone to get a job you're talking about a population on top of that of 4 million people with uh, a large number of Palestinian refugees historic refugees who aren't recognized within the country as having many of whom don't have any kind of rights certainly not citizenship on top of that population of 4 million people with an established refugee um population you have 1.2 million Syrian refugees who also need assistance um unofficially that close that number is closer to 1.5 million people so so you've got a country that's broken you've got a country where the 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 politicians are lining their own pockets at the expense of the public good you've got 2 million or so refugees in who are housed mostly in the poorest parts of Lebanon um you have closing closing healthcare facilities the world um food program has again cut down its assistance level to refugees to um i think it's 13 US dollars per month for, and that's only going to sustain half of those 1.2 million officially 1.2 million Syrian refugees so you've got a massive influx of people in an already stretched system people are resentful about cronyism and nepotism and yes yeah, so you stink was a response to to the fact that politicians in July um were that there was a there was a um a garbage dump that was overflowing and so uh politicians were finding other places unofficially to dump their garbage which was also in towns community centers where people were living um and they and didn't like that they that's, didn't that, like that, that strangely surprising. enough yeah so the so the reaction was first to that but this thing is morphed and what's interesting about you stink depending on your perspective is that it has cut across the 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 communities but i think one of the things that we don't talk about when we talk about lebanon is the massive economic disparity so the rich are very 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 rich and 30% of the Lebanese population lives at or beneath the poverty line. Um mm. so so what I think you stink speaks to is also economic divides. So you've got a whole bunch of stuff that's happening both in Le- Lebanon and the region and if you take a positive spin on you stink um you would say that it's a unifying factor, you would say that it's a really interesting uh youth focused as well kind of insurrectionist um reaction 
to decades of corruption. Um, if you take a less positive perspective, you would say that of the different movements that are happening now in the in Ustink, um, they're not. They don't seem to be speaking to each other. Uh, there are lots of different protests about lots of different things happening at the same time. There's a massive amount of police brutality that's being papered over and police brutality is being directed much more towards young men who are from particular communities who are also throwing Molotov cocktails, like let's not, let's not sugarcoat it. But there's a class divide in how people, the police are reacting to this. Mm. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that's happening in Lebanon that... that means that you, the You Stink campaign has the potential to create a space for, I think, for um, important discussions that need to be had. One of the discussions is not that's not going to be had is does a power-sharing system sustain deep, deep political divides um, and, and, mm. and its worst case turn into things like this? Yeah. Wow, I feel better about the Chinese stock market already, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. Scott, do you have a similarly optimistic take on this, uh, to what you did uh, on the mm. looming possibility of global economic collapse, or are you going to reinforce no. the apparently relentless bleakness of that no, analysis? Yeah. Which is not to say it is not wholly accurate. Bleakness and accuracy have a large area of overlap. No, give me the supposed looming economic collapse compared to this one any day. I mean, this is... This is an incredibly de- depressing but dangerous situation. I mean, the depressing part is that Lebanon, having come out of the civil war in 1990, and I've had the you know the real pleasure of being there on several occasions. Uh, one of my favorite places to go to. Beirut's an absolutely gorgeous city in terms of location, in terms of the vibrancy of it, in terms of the multicultural. It is. Um, you know, and there was a space I think in 2005 after the assassination of a, a leading figure, uh, Rafi Kariri that you had mass protest, which came out, which said, look, we, we genuinely want to talk about freedom and responsibility, and we want to grab hold of this. For too long, we've let the Syrians or the Saudis or the Israelis or the Americans or the French dictate what we do or dominate what we do. And that moment in 2005 has devolved again back into the same old, same old, that the same political elites quite often organize around loosely what are and almost euphemistically called parties, yeah. um, have continued to control power, have continued to control much of the the economic infrastructure, have s- stolen money from the country. Um, so that Lebanon, which, let's be honest, was dependent even for that brief moment in 2005 for a vast influx of money from the Gulf. Mm. There it was rebuilt uh, by the Saudis and other Gulf states to be this model for what could happen. That's all basically collapsing in on itself with these disparities in income that have come about. The rich have profited from what happened, the poor have not. And what's also happened, I mean, 2005 is a classic case of how those kind of protests can get co-opted, have been co-opted time and time again by parties because it created another division between two, I mean, a division right down the middle between what's, what's known as two different alliances, March 8th and March 15th. March, the March 8 uh, alliance, which was the, uh, the Hezbollah-led yeah. alliance, and then March, uh, uh, March 14, 14, which was the counter-Hezbollah movement, and clearly people like Saad Hariri, the son of, of Rafi Hariri. But was seen much more as 
Then the problem for March 14th was, is it was never defined in terms of this freedom and democracy and taking Lebanon to a new stage. It was defined quite often as an anti-Hezbollah movement. Yeah. Well, there's a problem that Lebanon's in. Like, you are not going to advance in Lebanon if you define yourself as to whom you were against, right? We're against Hezbollah. We're against the old political elites. We're against the Saudis. We're against the Americans being involved. You've got to be defined in terms of what you're for in terms of a progressive movement that's going to cut across the old sectarian lines, that's going to cut across the old loyalties to external actors. So I value what you stick are doing in terms of what they're trying to do, in terms of saying there's something badly wrong here and we've got to fix it. My worry is I don't know where they're going to find the organizational base to be able to succeed because they've got to make inroads on these old political cabals that hold on to power. And here's the downside. Why is it dangerous? Because if they don't succeed in breaking through, there's one of two things that are going to happen. Either you're going to have the countries who are keeping Lebanon going right now with external money, which is the Saudis, which is to an extent, although they've been crippled by the Iranians Mm -hmm. working with Hezbollah, other Gulf states, some European money. Either you're going to have those states basically saying, look, we're going to double down. We're going to put more in here. But they're going to kick in their investment into the old established elites, the old established groups, and we're just going to continue to recycle all the problems. Or, even worse than that, is they're going to pull their money out and say, screw it, that's it, we're out. We, we don't want, we, Lebanon might go to hell, but we're just going to take our risk in terms of what happens. Then. And if that happens, if the Saudis pull out, the Gulf states pull out, or if Hezbollah decides basically that they're going to double down mm-hmm. and take this to an internal battle, then you're back into a dangerous situation. I'm not going to say civil war because I would dread to think you're back into that. But you're talking back into at least conflict, which is going to have a ripple effect in addition to what we're already seeing from Syria. Because it will have an effect on the Israelis. It will put the Israel-Palestine issue beyond any type of, of possible hope of, of uh, reconciliation. Um, for the foreseeable future. And it just is one more example of where those buzzwords like freedom and democracy and our genuine hopes mm. have just run up against a stone wall of entrenched interest and people playing around with Lebanon, which is a country which basically has been independent since 1940, well, since the 1940s, but has not truly been, in, been independent. And I doubt will be so for the near future. I mean, Lebanon has has been sustained because it's a it's perceived of it's perceived as a buffer state for, mm. in the region yeah. and particularly yeah. particularly around Israel um, and Palestinian issue yeah. and the and the whole Saudi Iran division and is the, the that entire dynamic Lebanon is there's always been this construction of an argument that Lebanon holds things together and if Lebanon what Scott is painting is if Lebanon crumbles the the region also falls into even more uh, yeah I mean I guess this is if someone's going to give voice to the uh, uh, the ignorant outsider on this issue then it may as well be me because I am both ignorant and very much outside it um, I when it comes to a lot of the Middle East, especially post-2003 with all that went on in Iraq, um, I just get this feeling of uh, gnawing certainty of things getting worse rather than better in my stomach. And then intellectually that inhibits me from having any optimism or confidence about the solubility of the kind of problems that you, that, that you see in 
in the region, and this seems like a a pretty good microcosm example of it, um, that we have borders that originate essentially from the outside, a political entity created by people who are not on the ground that doesn't seem to reflect the identities around which people cohere, maybe not in the past, certainly not at the moment, um, in a context where violence and conflict seems to be a lot easier to gin up than enthusiasm for pluralism and cooperation, and in a context where outside powers have both the incentive and the disposition and the resources to contribute to making it worse, much more often it seems than they make it better, talking about the Saudis or the Iranians who are basically using it as a, a, a sandpit in which to punch each other in the face indirectly, it, it seems. Um, and then when I think about out, uh, our version of outside powers, Europeans or the United States, getting involved to try and fix it, all I think of is Iraq and places like it, not in the sense that anyone's suggesting an invasion, but just the sense that there is a blanket uh, lack of awareness of the level of detail that would be required to know what you're doing wading into a situation like that that makes me very wary uh, of us attempting to intervene uh, in intramural struggles or battles or to try and come up with some solution and move people towards it. So I fall then into that trap that I suspect is pretty widespread in the United States, in this country, and others are just going, well, this is a total mess. There's nothing we can do to fix it. Let's check back in 30 years and see if it's any better because there's certainly nothing that we, that we can do. Now, I know that makes me a bad person and probably doesn't make me a great international relations scholar either, but it is the emotional reaction having seen the way this region's politics have played out for so long. If we were disposed to expend resources and effort to try and make this better, is there anything we could do? Uh, help me be a better person by, by, by seeing a route to it. The here. thing is, Lebanon has always been the, the beacon of hope, right? So it's not... So when you talk about the mess of the Middle East, uh, probably, probably most depressing is the fact that Lebanon... Um, has been a just surviving mess. So the cliche is also... So this is the one that's supposed to make me this feel... This is the good news be- story. Better and all Lebanon more is the good news story. Right. Yeah. Um, can think... it be fixed? Uh, you know... Even made better. I'd settle for made better. <laughs> Scott, Scott looks like he wants to... Well, it's, it's a question back to... It's a two-step... <sighs> It's a possibility. possibility. Or a multi-step possibility, but drawing upon what you refer to in terms of community, that Lebanon yeah. runs on communities. And, and here's my question. I, uh, Rami Hurry, you know, one of the leading public intellectuals in, uh, in Lebanon, uh, has always been an optimist, and a refreshing optimist, when I've met him and, and been involved in projects that, that he's led. And that he said, look, there's this vibrancy in the Arab world, not just in Lebanon, but in the Arab world, that, that people want something better. They want to advance. They, he said well before the, the so-called Arab Spring, he was saying back in 2000, start of 2010, people are going to go to the streets. They're going to demand democracy. They're going to demand some type of legitimacy uh, from their governments. And to the extent that people did come out yeah. in the following, he was right. The problem, I think, that at least I saw in Lebanon, but also in other areas, is, okay, people come out and they want this better way, but then they face established, basically, military, political structures, economic structures. How do they organize to take it that way forward? 
Now, one answer that's there that is in Lebanon is they have to organize at the community level, that they have to organize services for each other, they have to organize some type of collective responsibility there. Now, is that possibility there in Lebanon that from the ground up, you find a way forward to provide the basics? But I thought, I thought from what Cristela said, the problem was they already had communities that were sort of organized and that had created patrician relationships with whoever gets to be the leader of that community. And the problem is that these communities are small, you know, the, the, the head of the community is also, in many cases, is also the problem solver, is also the person who's next door. Um, so... I don't know. I mean, yes, I agree. And, and your, your question most, most specifically is one of mobilization, but more generally is one of um, to what extent can communities become much more cut off, cut off the head and become more self-sustaining. But I would also say create relationships between communities, which is what some of these protests have been trying to do. And, and let's just say that Beirut Stinks is not the first. It's interesting I'm hopeful that it has some hope of survival and, and also might benefit from the, from the learning of other movements that have happened in the past. So, so what we've seen in Lebanon previous to this has been um, slow mobilisation, so anti-sectarian protests. You've seen um, protests against the way that domestic workers uh, are treated, protests around civil marriage. And all of these, I think, have, have been incrementally learning about how to organise. And, and I hope and I think that, that the organisers of Beirut Stinks, might, uh, that you stink, might be benefiting from that. But your, but your question is, can communities be self-sustaining in Lebanon? And I, and I think, I don't know, I think it's really hard. No. It's, it's an important test case in a way. I mean, it's a relatively small country. Yeah. But it is one where almost half the country yeah. is refugees, yeah. right? It is a country where the parliament has not only extended its term, it hasn't met uh, for well over a year. Yeah. So basically these communities have had to organize because yeah. of the, uh, simply the vacuum that exists. But I think to go further, you've got to talk about the established political leadership in some way. They've got to feel they can do it without them. And, that, and I'm, you're looking at the people like the current prime minister, yeah. who's been completely ineffectual in terms of... And you're looking at, let's be honest, at someone like, you're looking at Hezbollah, that people, instead of paying allegiance to someone like Nasrallah, who feeds upon, basically... Yeah. Who's the leader of Hezbollah who, in Lebanon? Yeah. Who's the leader of Hezbollah, who feeds upon that, you have to say, no, that, that we're not going to pay allegiance to those leaders. And it's interesting that of the poster, of the figures on the posters of the Ustine people, in terms of the leaders they've aimed at, yeah. so they have to go, his is the one that has not shown up on the posters. Yeah. That's an interesting little twist in the Ustine protest. Look, I think there's also sorry to cut in. I think this also there's there's also a broad insecurity in Lebanon about about Syria, and Hezbollah his, historically for for what it is has also been perceived as the the as the kind of protector of the mm. country. And I know and because Hezbollah is fighting on the borders now, and because of the threat of ISIS, and because of the refugee camps. Um, and the insecurities that have been triggered from from Palestinian refugees and from the past, I think that, I mean, Hezbollah is, is a whole story in itself. Um, and especially, I think, more and more bodies of, of fighters are coming back and Hezbollah is not talking about it and they're not publicising it. So I think Hezbollah is fragile at the moment. At the same time, 
I think there's, there is a real reluctance, what you're pointing to about the posters and the lack of Nasrallah's face, says that there is a reluctance to, to hit Hezbollah when who else is going to be protecting mm. the borders of, of Lebanon for better or for worse. Because, yeah, I mean, hard as it may be to believe, Syria used to be the stabilizing influence to some extent here, right? Depending that it, that on it was what the, your perception Right, is. that it was the relatively peaceful uh, uh, country within its own borders, at least, that was next to Lebanon, which was prone to yeah. uh, violent civil conflict. And now I don't think anyone is uh, unaware of the fact that Syria is an absolute catastrophe. Yeah. So having a country that's got, what, five times the population right on your borders, producing one of the worst refugee crises that, that the world has seen in modern times, um, while you're dealing with all these long-standing institutional problems. That's a recipe to make anything that would have worked even under ideal circumstances struggle even more badly, I would mm. have thought, because resources and uh, the management of resources is going to be at a premium in that kind of situation. The politics of resource management. Mm. Yeah. Well, if this is the uh, if this is the ideal case, then I think I'll, I'll retain my sense of a, a sad doubt about the likelihood of regional improvement anytime soon. I do also let, let's close on a slightly more optimistic note, and I do Please. want a second. God, we, Cristala, we need it. Please hit us. I think Beirut, uh, you stink, does point to what Scott is talking about, something that Scott has talked about, which is the dynamism of Arab communities of the Middle East, of uh, of this really rich, particularly Lebanon as well, as a microcosm of that, really rich, really diverse, really innovative country. Of, of, uh, so, I do, so, I, so I do hold out hope that it might turn into something or that... Or that at least it's not all bleakness and bombs. Hmm. What Eustin does is at least keeps lines of communication yeah. open. That's the important thing. Is that uh, in in contrast to certain other countries, one could talk, for example, about a large country like Turkey, which supposedly is modernizing, but is actually cutting off lines of communication. Eustin actually basically says, "Look, we can still act. We can still protest. We can still be there. We can still basically." Call for something better. We can sit in the Minister of Environments. Yeah. Uh, offices yeah. until they beat until the they, crap out of yeah, us yeah beat you out of them yeah. I, I guess well uh, I don't think I've ever had less faith in the opening line of my usual closing which is I think we've set the world to rights <laughs> I, we have we have so badly failed to set the world to rights over the course of these two items but you know the world keeps turning and Kenya um, will be president <laughs> yeah uh, with or without our help Thank you very much. I'm Adam Quinn. Uh, you can find me at Adam James Quinn on Twitter. My co-hosts, as usual, have been Cristala Yakinthu. Where can they find you, Cristala? They can find me at, uh, at Yakinthu on Twitter. That's Y-A-K-I-N-T-H-O-U. I see you come prepared the, uh, this time. For the non-intuitive uh, uh, Greek nomenclature <laughs> specialists. Scott, where can they find yourself? On EA Worldview, eaworldview.com, or on Scott Lucas underscore EA on Twitter. Our producer is Connor McKenna. You've been listening to us for the, uh, from the Pulses Department at the University of Birmingham in England. We are the Political Worldview Podcast. You can find us on SoundCloud or on iTunes or on hopefully many other places in the future to come. Please subscribe, leave us a comment, etc. We'll be back soon. We hope you will be too. Bye.